And that's why then it begins in the second part of uh, verse 17. So they took Jesus. So they took Jesus, the soldiers, they took Jesus. He went out bearing his own cross. And again, you probably know it's just the top part of the cross is what they, what they would carry to the place of crucifixion. The uh, vertical piece stayed put, but they would carry the, the vertical piece. That was the part that was carried. Um, the Romans perfected crucifixion. It came from the old Persian um, impaling. You can learn about that in the book of Esther. Uh, Persians impaled. They just put a stake up with a uh, point, and they'd throw a human body over it. And that would stay there because the point of that or the point of crucifixion is um, a deterrent. You don't want to go against the authority of the empire. So the Persians did that. The Persians actually kind of morphed it into crucifixion. And then the the Romans um, perfected the art of crucifixion. We have literally examples of thousands of people being crucified at one time. Uh, like, for instance, um, when, when the Roman legion would, uh, would, would squelch a revolt in a city, uh, they would, like, crucify thousands as a symbol of what happens if you go against the authority of the empire. So, yeah, crucifixion is well known in the ancient world. So he took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Gagatha. Um, you may or may not have noticed you don't find the word Calvary anywhere in your Bible. It's in your hymns, but you don't find the word Calvary anywhere in your Bible. Calvary comes from the Latin translation, Calvaria. Um, that's the Latin word for the medical people in the room for skull. So that's why in the Latin translation, Gogatha is Calvary. Um, but you don't read Latin anymore, so your Bible doesn't say Calvary. It says Gogatha place of the skull, um, but the word Latin got into our tradition through, I mean, the word Calvary got into our tradition through Latin. So uh, the place of the skull, by the way, for those of you that have been to um, Jerusalem, almost all scholars and archaeologists place this place underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, that was outside the city. In Jesus' day, um, it, it, and there's, there's lots of reasons, but almost all, all scholars uh, put the place of crucifixion and the place of burial as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the place that was built by Christians in the, first, in the fourth century to mark the spot. Uh, there is another place, Gordon's Calvary, which looks like it probably looked in the first century at the spot where they crucified and then buried Jesus. Gordon's Calvary uh, was developed in the 1880s. The tomb that you walk in there to see what a f- ancient tomb looked like, the tomb that you walk in there to get a sense of what kind of tomb Jesus would have been put into is an ancient tomb. It's actually about 500 years before the time of Christ, uh, the one you see there at Gordon's tomb. But the real area is underneath the Church of Holy Sepulchre, the site that we Christians have... have um, acknowledged for almost, well, 1,800 years. So we know the place. Verse 18, and notice this, there they crucified him. That's it. Very restrained. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the Gospels are you even told he was nailed in his hands and his feet. The ancient world so knew crucifixion so well 
those in the Roman Empire era. They so knew crucifixion so well. John doesn't have to paint the picture. It was well known in the Roman era. So he just says, so they crucified him. Um, now, Mel Gibson give you a lot of the detail, if you're interested. But, yeah, you notice the Gospels really don't. Uh, there's no mention in the Gospels of hands and feet. Why do we know he was nailed through his hands and feet? Resurrection, yep. Very good. Yeah, that's, he showed the scars to uh, Thomas. Uh, that's all because there's no reference to uh, here as to how you crucified somebody. But they didn't need to. It was so well known in the ancient world. So that's why the gospel just says, there they crucified him. And with, with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. If you go to Luke, you know they're, they're robbers or less day, um, insurrectionists gathered you know, on either side. The important point about that and you may, you'll probably hear this text this week. The reason he's crucified among, between um, other terrorists or insurrectionists is uh, the prophet Isaiah said, he, he will be numbered with transgressors. He will, be, he will be killed among other evil people. So um, a lot of what, particularly John's doing here, a lot of what John's doing is showing you how the crucifixion of Christ uh, fulfilled Scripture. Uh, but you can go back to Isaiah 53 and see the, the prediction, the prophecy. He was going to be numbered with the transgressors. And he was crucified with, with criminals. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription. Now, this is interesting. And chances are, I'm getting ready to tell you, you probably never heard unless you've hung out with some uh, Jewish Christians. But I think it to be true. Look at this. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put on the it put it on the cross. Pilate, the Roman, is writing this. The power, the authority. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. All four Gospels talk about this titulus, this sign, that's placed above the head of Jesus. All four Gospels talk about that. Uh, they vary a little bit when they tell you what's on the sign, except they all agree the minimum that was on the sign is King of the Jews. Because, again, that was the... That was the, that was the um, charge, uh, treason. He's claiming to be king of the Jews, and they already have one. His name's Caesar, uh, Caesar Tiberius in Rome. So that's, that's what got him crucified, executed by the Romans. He, he was claiming to be their king. So there's this titulus put over top of this, this, this plaque over top of him. Um, verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, uh, today it's in the medieval walls, the church told his sepulcher. In Jesus' day it was outside the walls, but it's inside the medieval walls now. Um, so it was outside the city. It's on a major road. Again, they knew what they were doing with crucifixion. You crucified people in a high-traveled area uh, to, to just display the power of, of empire. So the, um, they, 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 they put them near the city on a major road. Um, they've got this sign above his head, and you hear here in verse 20, it was written in Aramaic, that's the language, the street language of the Jews in Jesus' time. In Latin, of course, that's the official language of the Roman Empire. And in Greek, that was the worldwide language of the era. That's why your New Testament's written by Jews writing in Greek. That was the worldwide language of the day, sort of like English is now. So, so, um, so that everybody could read it, it's written in three languages. 
Now, John's going to tell us something interesting. This is probably what you haven't seen before. Um, this really agitates the religious leaders for a good reason. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm king of the Jews. Well, we assume they're still trying to play this thing up that they're loyal to Caesar and that they really don't think he's king of the Jews. And that may be all that's going on. That may be all that's going on. But my um, Jewish friends tell me that if you write Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, if you want to write, that's a lot of words. So they may have abbreviated it. Um, they may have written it with really big uh, initial letters and smaller letters to write the words. But they say if you write that in um, uh, the Aramaic up there, it's going to say Yeshua Hanorzi Vumik a Yahudin. That's how you would say it, write it in Aramaic. If, my Jewish friends tell me, Jewish Christians, if you abbreviate that and put it over Jesus' head, you get yod Hey vav Hey. You get, using English letters, Y-Y-Y-H-W-H. Does it ring the bell? Yahweh. Name for God. Yeah, the name that's revealed at the burning bush. The verb, I am. So yeah, if, if that is what Pilate did and put the sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred name of God... The initials, there's no, there's no vowels in Hebrew. And if they had put the Y-H-W-H-Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh above the head of Jesus. Again, what have you noticed in John's Gospel? There's lots being done that's true on two levels. Yeah, Judas went out to betray Jesus and it was night. Well, it's night because sun went down. It was dark, though, because of what Judas was doing. You have a lot of those double meanings in the Gospel of John, and you're going to see some more here. You have a lot of those meanings where the people are saying one thing and thinking one thing, but they're saying something more profound and deeper than they realize. Well, yeah, if the Romans had abbreviated, because they're writing in three languages, they're writing a significant amount of words, and they're putting it on a plaque above his head, so you can only get so many letters up there. If they had abbreviated the Aramaic yod hey vav hey, I'm sure the religious leaders had a fit putting the sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred name of Je- sacred name of God, on top of Jesus. So they just had a fit that the sacred name of Jesus, God's up there, but it fits, doesn't it? From a Christian perspective, He is the Great I Am. That's that's how you translate Yahweh, the the verb to be, the Great I Am. So my Jewish friends like to point that out. My Jewish Christian friends like to point that out. That may have been what was abbreviated above his head that so agitated these religious leaders. Verse 23, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, let's not tear that. Let's cast lots. Let's throw dice to see, who, to see whose it shall be. Now, again, these are just soldiers trying to make something off the 
crucifixion of a prisoner. Uh, but again, John knows they're doing it to fulfill Scripture. And at this point, John quotes the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. As far as the most quoted, the one psalm that's quoted most often in the New Testament. You know what it is? Psalm 22. It's the psalm that will be chanted tonight in our sanctuary. That's tomorrow night. Be chanted tomorrow night in our sanctuary after our Monday Thursday service when we're stripping the altar. It's great to have a choir back now. Our choir will chant Psalm 22. Psalm 22, if you go back and read it, that's the psalm that starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But keep reading. If you keep reading that psalm, the the crucifixion is painted in dramatic details in Psalm 22, such as what John's saying right here, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's what was in Psalm 22. And that's what happened to Jesus when he's on the cross. That's why Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, because it, it is a prophecy of the crucifixion of, of Jesus. And it just paints a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus in a remarkable way. So yeah, the other soldiers don't know what they're doing. They're fulfilling scripture when they do that. Hmm? This I think there is. I think there is significance here, and I'm going to show you something else I bet you've never noticed. Because what, what John mentions, nobody else mentions. They all kind of, some, several of them talk about the garments, talking about the significance of the garments. What jumps out at you, if you're familiar to the other text, is that word seamless. Here you're specifically told it's a seamless garment. Um, I'll tell you why, let me, let me keep reading. I'll tell you why I think it's, why John tells you that. Because John's going to tell you something else right here that only John tells you. I think John assumes you've read the rest of the Gospels. So after we're talking about the clothing here, you've been told it's a seamless garment. Notice the next thing John records. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Uh, there, there's scholars out there particularly those who know the Jewish faith, that says um, that very special seamless tunic, that's not an easy thing to create, I'm told by people who so, but that very special seamless tunic um, that they didn't want to rip up there that was a possession of Jesus. In the Jewish tradition, that would have been something made for him by his mother. So as soon as John tells you about this seamless tunic, he starts talking about the mother. So um, I think maybe there's some truth in that. That's why John's only tells you it's seamless. John's pointing to a particular kind of garment here. And then as soon as he raises the issue of the seamless garment, he starts telling you about his mother. And here's something that, you know, part of the issue with the crucifixion account, we usually read them or read from the crucifixion accounts on Good Friday. We don't really, have a, we don't really take a lot of opportunities to teach the crucifixion account. Because I'll show you something else here that is talked about a lot in the last 2,000 years that we don't talk about now. Notice how these women are named. So here, here's his mother. In John's gospel, he's 
she is always referred to as his mother and is never referred to by name. Um, probably too many Marys running around. So Jesus' mother is always referred to as Jesus' mother in the Gospel of John. So here's his mother and his mother's sister. It's the only place where you see a reference to his mother's sister. Yeah, didn't know she had a sister. I'm going to get ready to tell you who the sister was. We, we've talked about it for 2,000 years. Um, and there's, as we get on into this text, here's where, this is one of the reasons we say this. We don't just make this stuff up. The, if you have it in your study Bible, if you have a good study Bible, it may actually say this. We have assumed for a couple thousand years now, his mother's sister is Salome. His mother's sister is Salome, the wife of Zebedee. Of course, Salome and Zebedee are the parents of who? James and John. Who's standing at the cross here? You got John standing here at the cross. So when Jesus gives Mary into the keeping of John, she's actually given, he's actually given Mary into the keeping of a relative. So we've had this um, deep suspicion over the centuries that James and John and Jesus are cousins. And that's why John's here at the cross. And that's why when you're getting ready to see, it's John's gospel, when Jesus gives the keeping of Mary, his mother, into John's keeping, he's not just dissing the brothers and the sisters of Jesus. Because again, you know there's brothers and sisters, right? Mark tells you that twice. Um, well, there's maybe two good reasons why Jesus... Well, there's three good reasons. Jesus, even on the cross, is concerned about his mother. He's concerned about others. Jesus, on the cross, sees his cousin John, he's, who he's very close to, which also makes sense if John is the... What's the phrase that's used in John's Gospel for maybe John? The beloved disciple. Cousin. Cousin John. So not only Jesus is concerned about Mary, Jesus sees his cousin John there. And the other reason, his family's not there to even give Mary to. Who knows where they are. But um, So the only people you got the, at the cross are these women and John. So um, John's hanging in there. So um, this Mary's sister, yeah, there's strong, strong tradition. This is Salome, Zebedee. So, you know... When, when Jesus went and got the two fishermen, James and John, there was a previous relationship there. Um, and this, this next one that shows up is also mentioned somewhere else. His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Where have you seen the name Clopas before? Do you remember? On the walk to Emmaus. Remember the two people on the road that Jesus encounters one of them is named Clopas. You know, and they're saying, don't you know what's going on, Jesus? Don't you know what's going on? You know, we had this really rough couple days in Jerusalem. So this Clopas, um, what, notice, is the wife of Clopas. Clopas is not here, but the wife, Mary, the wife of Clopas, went home and told Clopas, I'm sure. And Clopas um, is probably the Clopas that you read about in Luke 24 that is one of... Um, one of the two that Jesus encounters on the road. So here's Mary, Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. A lot of Marys running around here. 
That may be why John's gospel never uses the name. It says Mary or says the mother of Jesus. Look at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, maybe his cousin, John, um, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And remember, that's the same phrase he uses for her in John 2 at the wedding feast of Canaan of Galilee and the miracle of turning water into wine. It's not a disrespectful term. Woman, behold your son. At that point, we assume he kind of pointed to John. Then he said to this disciple, cousin John, beloved disciple, author of the gospel, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home, which is why when you travel to Ephesus, they'll show you a house in Ephesus, Turkey where Mary died because that we have strong, strong tradition. You know, John is fairly young at this point. Uh, he has the rest of his life ahead of him. He's the only disciple that, that did not die a martyr's death, according to early records. Um, but he does go to Ephesus. He, he kind of founds the church at Ephesus. Uh, the church at Ephesus in so many ways is Johannine, Johannine church, uh, influenced by John. So that's why he, he kept Mary with him the rest of his life. He took care of Mary. And that's why they'll show you a house. Who knows? But they'll show you a house. The tradition is very much there in Christian tradition that uh, she dies in Ephesus with John. Because so, he, he, from that hour, this disciple took her into his own home. But um, very touching scene. Only John tells you this. Maybe because of this unique connection with the beloved disciple. Look at 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished... He said, again, to fulfill the scripture, and this is either Psalm 22, it could be from Psalm 69, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus says, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, you, you may recall the other gospels, at one point when he's carrying the cross, they try to give him some wine uh, with sedative in it. He refuses that. Didn't accept the sedative. Um, here, though, notice, um, here's another, here's some more wine. Uh, they put it on a sponge and put it up to his mouth. He's going to accept this. He, he, he's going to accept this. Uh, but before you see him accepting it, notice it's not just any old branch that they're using. It's a hyssop branch. Do you have any memories about the hyssop branch? Yep. Yep. That's what, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, where they put the blood on the doorpost for Passover. When they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, what did they use? Hyssop branch. So John's reminding you the Passover, all the connection. This is the lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. Think about the first Passover. Um, yeah. Uh, particularly on Saturday evening in, in the, this week, we talk about Passover. We talk about how we pass over from death to life because of Jesus. But yes, it's not just a throwaway fact here. It's a hyssop branch. You need to go back to that lamb, that lamb in the Passover, you know, uh, the, uh, before the Exodus. So it's a hyssop branch. But anyway, notice Jesus accepts this wine for a really good reason. He's thirsty. And notice what happens. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said he had to wet his whistle. He was so parched when he, was, when he received something to drink. Then he said, John says, when he received the wine, Jesus said, it is finished. 
So he had enough moisture in his mouth at that point he could declare, it is finished. And in good John fashion, he, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We've talked about quite a bit in the Gospel of John, in, in the Passion narrative. Jesus is very much in control. His life was not taken from him. He gave it up. And John emphasized that in so many ways over and over and over. So when he declared, it is finished, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Um, and his spirit goes to be with the Father until resurrection. Same thing for you and I that die in Christ. Your spirit goes to be with the Father until resurrection. Uh, so he gives up his spirit. Um, by the way, it's... Um, in um, uh, the other gospel, he, he, he prays something at this point. Remember, he prays Psalm 31. Father, in your hand I commend my spirit. So he's a priest praying a psalm while he's on the cross. Now, um, so he dies. He gives up his life. Um, he died remarkably fast. You're going to see that in John's gospel. Um, from all the medical people that I've heard from and read from over the years, and we've got several medical people in the room, you can correct me, but what you tend to read about concerning crucifixion, what kills you? Because again, it's supposed to be a lengthy, humiliating, uh, very visible death to deter the enemies. Um, what you read about as far as what causes death, and we have records of some people lasting a week on the cross, and that was for good reason. You want to, you know, if you're wrong, the power, you want to see what, you want people to see the suffering. Um, uh, we have records of that, being, of that happening up to a week. Um, what would happen is blood loss, maybe, if you were, particularly if you were beaten like Jesus was beaten, blood loss. But uh, part of, and you're going to see this in John's Gospel again, what you read frequently is part of what killed you was asphyxiation. And you kind of had to lift yourself up to breathe because your lungs are filling with fluid. You're going to see that in John's Gospel. Your lungs are filling with fluid. Um, in some pictures, and you can't put a lot of stock in medieval artwork, but in some pictures of art, you'll actually almost see a little seat behind Jesus. And there's some idea that maybe they did give you a little seat to sit on because that would prolong your death. So probably what you're watching is you're watching crucifixion. Their, their lungs are filling up with fluid. They try to, I guess almost by reflex, they try to kind of lift themselves up to breathe. Um, but of course, if you've got nails in your hands and your feet, the pain is going to be so bad, uh, the, the pain will thrust you back on the cross. So, and we have examples of people writing about crucifixion. So you wouldn't always be watching somebody on the cross in perfect stillness. They're dying from, their lungs are filling up with fluid. Um, they may be trying to breathe. So um, that's part of what's, what's going on there. Um, you'll notice uh, in John's gospel, it's unusual he died so quickly. He died so quick for two good reasons. He, they about beat him to death. He bled to death about before he got there. Plus, he's the one in control. He gave up his life when he was ready to give up his life. So he's going to shock them by, by dying so quickly. Look at, um, look at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and I'm going to tell you in a second what day that is. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, it's the Sabbath during Passover. 
or it's the Sabbath after Passover during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So it's an exceptionally holy Sabbath. So, you know, even if you kill Jesus, you don't, you don't want his body on the cross during the, this specially holy Sabbath. So they, they want the bodies removed. The Jews, the Judean religious leaders there in Jerusalem, the Ju- Ju- Judean religious leaders asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Why would breaking their legs hasten their death? They couldn't lift up to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe. So you, you, you take this mallet, break the legs, and then they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe, and that would hasten their death. Because again, some people stayed seven, eight days on the cross. So that's what the Jews say to Pilate. You know, we want these bodies off the cross. This is not the kind of artwork and display we want during, during our special Sabbath of Passover. By the way, this year, Passover and Good Friday starts at the same time. It doesn't always happen that way. So the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they, might, that they, the corpses on these crosses, might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He just died very quickly. He died when he was ready to die. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers, to make sure he's dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Well, you can imagine, we've got a lot of mileage out of this for the last 2,000 years. Blood, Lamb of God, Holy Communion, sacrament, water, um, baptism. They, they pierce his side, and to confirm his death, blood and water comes out. Uh, if you read medical stuff about this, I read about a pericardium, is that what it's called? The sac around the heart sometimes fills up with water. If you're dying this way in the spirit, evidently pierced that. So blood and water came out of his side. Now look at this really interesting verse, only in John, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Um, I think we usually tend to assume, because it just says he, he who saw this, you know, the blood and the water coming out and Jesus already dead, he who saw this has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe, particularly because of that phrase that you may believe and what comes later in John's gospel. We usually assume that's John, just sort of inserting himself here and saying, but he's already told you he's at the, well, maybe he's already told you, the beloved disciples at the cross. So we've usually assumed this person who saw it is, has borne witness to it. He saw this happen. He's borne witness to us, John. But um, you can just about as easily make the case that maybe later, because again, we don't know all this story, maybe later this soldier who did this became a Christian. And he's part of the early community. And that's why it fits perfectly. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, and he who saw it has borne witness, so that you may believe. This could be John. It could be maybe a soldier that, that actually did the piercing of the side, who became Christian later and, and then said, hey, I was there. I saw it. I, I pierced his side. Because it's just, a, it's just a pronoun here, he who saw it. Look at verse 36. John's not going to let you get too far from this. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, I bet you in your Bible, you don't need a study Bible for this. If you just have cross-reference, 
Your Bible is going to give you a cross-reference to tell you what verse is being quoted there. That verse that says, not one of his bones will be broken. Where does that come from? Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Well, yeah, Paul's going to quote it in 1 Corinthians too because it comes from Exodus. It's talking about the Passover. Your lambs that you offered at the Passover had to be unblemished. You had to offer perfect lambs at the Passover. Um, which is why, by the way, you couldn't bring your lamb with you from where you traveled. You had to buy your lamb in Jerusalem. Get a good, perfect, unblemished lamb. And, and they're told that in Exodus. Um, you know, not one of his bones would be broken. John's saying, that's really why the soldier didn't break his legs. Because this Lamb of God, this Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the Passover Lamb can't have broken bones. soldier didn't know that, but we know that. Verse 37, and again, John won't let you get far from this, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's a direct quotation from uh, the prophecy of Zechariah. Um, yeah, another prophecy from Zechariah. So he's dead. Um, you see the circumstances surrounding his death. Real quickly, look at the burial. And the burial is fascinating because you have two brave Pharisees who bury him. Two somewhat brave, somewhat bold Pharisees who are Christ followers to some extent bury him. Look at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea... Uh, and you know about Joseph. In Luke's gospel, you're told he's a good man, he's a righteous man, he was one who was uh, part of the kingdom, um, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the ruling council, a uh, Pharisee probably. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he's not secret anymore, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. So again, he's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, member of the Sanhedrin. And again, that's what happened. But um, it's also um, had to happen because Isaiah prophesied. He'd be numbered among the wealthy in his dead. So he's buried in a, in a tomb that belonged to a wealthy man. So Joseph of Arimathea, member of the 70, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, goes and gets the body. Here's the, here's the other Pharisee that you've already met in John chapter 3, verse 39, Nicodemus, also who had earlier come to Jesus by night. You know, the whole story, John 3, what must I do to be born again? He came to Jesus by night, came bringing, what, look at this, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Um, both are used in embalming. You wrap uh, the body in um, cloth and you, you put... Uh, something to make it smell pretty good. You put some of uh, these spices between the cloth because the body has to decay there in that family tomb for about a year. And then after the body decays, you take the bones and put the bones in an ossuary, put the bones in a bone box. Uh, they're all over Israel, bone boxes, but you have to let the body decay. Uh, and these are family tombs, and that, that's, that is right at the garden tomb. You can walk into the family tomb, you see this little entrance area, and you got these niches where people are body, buried, but they're laid out there uh, for their bodies to, to, de to decay. Then, they're, then they, a year later, they come back and take the bones and put them, put them in ossuaries. So the, here, they come, here comes Nicodemus. Look at this. It's amazing. Here comes Nicodemus by night bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. 
Now you know about myrrh. That's one of the things the wise men brought, which should every Christmas or every Epiphany, you say, why are they bringing an embalming spice to the newborn child? Well, you know why they're bringing the embalming spice to Jesus. Uh, And if you sing the hymn, We Three Kings, there's a verse that tells you why they brought myrrh. It was an embalming spice. He came to die. So anyway, here's Nicodemus bringing myrrh and aloes. About 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. Well, it's going to give you the, the, the Jewish... Yeah, it's going to give you the Jewish uh, amount and then kind of help you translate it into something you know. But 75 to 100 pounds, if it was 50 pounds, it's still the same issue. That's a lot. You know, can you, I always have this vision of Nicodemus dragging this heavy bag, 50, 7,500 pounds of spices um, to anoint the body of Jesus. That, that's extravagant. That is extravagant. No. It's weird. That's why I think John's telling you. I mean, yeah. I mean, if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't use that much spice on you. I mean, I mean, you just have to stick stuff between. That, that is, is meant to show. If you have any questions about whether or not Nicodemus came to faith, whether or not Nicodemus loved Jesus, John is settling that for you. I mean, that's, that's, that's extravagant. That's, that's a big bag of spices. Um, yeah, John's telling you that number, cause he's not, not because he's into math, but he wants you to see that picture. It's a large amount. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with, with the spices. You put the spices between the, the cloths, as is, as is the burial custom of the Jews, which I just explained to you. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, And in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid, presumably the tomb of Joseph, Arimathea. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Uh, People are usually surprised when they go to the church, the Holy Sepulchre, and we do believe it's over the site of both crucifixion and burial. Again, it's an audacious, ostentatious church that's been there since the 4th century. So, you know... It's not, it's not a beautiful, it's kind of beautiful in its antiquity, but people usually are shocked by, are both sites under this same church? Now, it's a big church, but still, are both sites under this same church? Well, John said, um, the tomb is close at hand. And under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we, we, there's a necropolis. There have been lots of old tombs found. Some of you have been with me. I'm sure I took you into one of the old tombs, right? Yeah, there's lots of old tombs found underneath the Church of Holy Sepulchre. So yeah, the crucifixion site and the burial site was um, close by. Again, and I'm sure, particularly if you have the ESV Study Bible, you have a really good, you really have a good, really have a good picture in there of what Jerusalem would look like uh, at the at the time of the Passion of Jesus. It wasn't that big of a city, so just as soon as you got outside the gates, that's where you're going to do your stuff. But yeah, so the crucifixion site and the burial site's close by, and. Um, Probably both today under the church, the Holy Sepulchre. So that 